that that was like the uh, I don't know the mumblecore version of Frasier. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts? What's with a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a member of the following films network. So, speaking of that network, as usual, we have a guest from that network. We have Chris Maynard from the following films podcast. So, thanks for coming back, Chris. Thank you for having me back. Anytime. All right. Um, so before uh, we get into the movie, which is blindness and the psychology, which is adaptation, uh, why don't you uh, give us a couple movie recommendations? Um, OK, so with adaptation, that's pretty much every movie ever made. Yes. Um, Change so the, and adjustment. Yeah, that's <laughs> the drama is built around conflict. And right. so adaptation is nothing more. A lot of the times when you're talking about in film, it's overcoming and dealing with conflict mm-hmm. and how they adjust that situation. So um, you could think of it as emotional adaptation, physical adaptation, all that. Um, for some reason, and I guess it could be the nature of this movie, the first thing that came to mind was 2001. Okay. Um, just kind of thinking about human evolution. This is on like that, the same that, level, right? Blindness, no, I was 2001. just wanting to watch something good. And, so, <laughs> and that's how like far out my mind was able to go while I was rewatching this movie. Uh, <laughs> not my favorite sit in the world. Because but of we'll podcasting, get you get to watch it twice. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> I was sure you were going to go like really hit the nail on the head. And for adaptation, you were going to recommend adaptation. adaptation. I was sure of it. <laughs> Well, I, I do have a second one. Okay. So, but it's not that. Um, my thought for that one was kind of a comedic version of it, um, which after 2001 and spending a little bit of time thinking about yeah, not, a, from, not a lot of comedy in 2001. Not a lot of comedy, yeah. but I, I thought Real Genius is oh, kind of an underrated excellent. little movie from the 80s that a lot of people have forgotten about, um, where I think his, the character's name is Jordy, and you have him mm-hmm. going off to college dealing yes. with this sort of MIT or Caltech you know, uh, surrogate school that he's going to and him dealing with uh, freshman year as a 13 year old, 16 year old, something like that. I can't remember, but great little movie. If you haven't seen real genius, it's Val Kilmer before he was, uh, he could do Mark Twain convincingly. But he <laughs> looks enough like him now. Uh, yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah. And real genius is one of those forgotten movies, but apparently not among guests of pop culture case study, because I think this is <laughs> the second or third time it's been recommended. So get out and watch that apparently. And if you yep. want to check out any of those other movies that have been recommended on the show, we have a letterboxd account under PC case study, and you can actually see all of the something like, I think 150 movies that have been recommended. If you're ever, you know, in need of something to watch, there are plenty of ideas there. Uh, and speaking of which, I just watched one of the ones you recommended, you asshole. Uh, I watched <laughs> Compliance. Jesus. It's a, it's a fun set, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You would think that movie is three and a half hours long, but it's like an hour and 25, but it feels... And not, not because it drags, not because it's a bad movie, but you just don't want to be there. So oh, every, every frame of that movie is uncomfortable, yeah. and it only gets worse with each frame that comes... <laughs> it just, it just builds on itself in that way. <laughs> It's it's so bizarre because if it wasn't based on a true story, I don't know that you would have the buy-in for it. Oh, yeah. Everyone would call bullshit on that movie. I I started to do it during the movie, and I was like, wait, 
this happened. Like this is a yeah. real thing. Oh, I hate people. People are the worst. It, yeah, it's it's pretty terrible. But I mean, it's I don't know. Um, in doing my podcast, it was I had the chance to talk to the composer and one of the stars of the movie. Um, so it's kind of one of those ones that is a movie that I've been following for a long mm-hmm. time, and one that I think got. There was buzz around it when it initially came out, but then with the release, I think it kind of got you know swept under the rug, under the rug, and people forgot about it. And it's yeah. one of those ones that still holds up, and I, I hope that it finds a home amongst uh, you know cinephiles, fucking weirdos like us. Yes, fucking weirdos. Well, okay, somebody that owns a copy of it, and that's like their Tuesday night jam that they just can't fall asleep. <laughs> Run, <that> Run away <laughs> from that person. But. Somebody that's, you know, I, I think it's a good recommendation for yes. people. Though. Yeah, totally agree. All right. So we are going to take a little break and then I will talk about adaptation and we'll and we'll bring Chris back to talk about blindness. And he just can't wait. Most people know Stanley Kubrick is one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. And together we co-host the Best and Worst of the Best podcast, a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh Oh, so wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. So today, as I mentioned, we're talking about adaptation. So in biology, adaptation is also called an adaptive trait, and it has this kind of functional role in the life of an organism that is maintained and evolved by, of course, natural selection. So adaptation refers to two things, the current state of being adapted and to this kind of dynamic process that leads to that adaptation. Adaptations will enhance kind of the fitness and survival of in our case, people, but just of organisms in general. And organisms will face this kind of succession of environmental challenges as they grow and develop and end up with this, what we would call adaptive plasticity. And those would develop in response to these imposed conditions. So there's kind of a couple different definitions. So adaptation is, of course, the evolutionary process whereby an organism becomes better able to live and thrive in its habitat. Adaptedness is the state of being adapted kind of the degree to which an organism is able to live and reproduce in a given set of habitats. And an adaptive trait is an aspect of the developmental pattern of the organism, which enables or enhances the probability of that organism surviving and reproducing. Okay, so there's several kinds of adaptation, the first of them being changes in habitat. Before Darwin was around, adaptation was seen as this very fixed structured relationship between an organism and its habitat, And they didn't take into account that if the climate changed, so did the habitat. And as the habitat changed, so did the organism. So when the habitat does change, three things may happen to the organism. Habitat tracking, genetic change, or extinction. In fact, all three of these things can occur in that sequence. But of those three, only genetic change brings about adaptation. So habitat tracking, which I just mentioned is the idea that when a habitat changes, the most common thing to happen is that the organisms will move on to another locale that that is suited to the prior habitat. So this is typical response, especially of like flying insects or oceanic organisms who have really wide opportunities for movement. So this is called habitat tracking. So they're tracking towards another habitat that's similar to where they were before the change. 
Now, genetic change, and remember that is what actually causes adaptation, this is what occurs in a population when natural selection will act on the genetic variability of the population. So some mutations may create genetic variation that will lead to these differing characteristics of offspring and will kind of increase adaptation. And genetic changes can result in changes that are visible, like things that you would actually notice, or they may just adjust physiological activity in a way that suits the habitat and the organism. The second type of adaptation is about intimate relationships, and we call them co-adaptation. So in co-evolution, where the existence of a species is bound up with the life of, of other species, new adaptations that occur in one species are usually followed by the appearance and spread of these features in another species. So it's not just this one species is changing because we are a part of these habitats that, you know, sometimes we interact so much with other organisms that that other organism will change too. So lots of examples of this. So this idea emphasizes that the life and death of living things is actually connected, not just with the physical environment, but with the life of other species. So these relationships, these dynamic relationships, can continue on these trajectories for millions of years, like, like the relationship between flowering plants and insects. This leads us to pollination. Um, and if these two groups didn't change at the same rate, then we would have a big, big problem. Another way that this comes up is mimicry. So there was a person named Bates who worked on Amazonian butterflies, and it led him to develop the first scientific account of mimicry, especially the kind of mimicry which bears his name, Batesian mimicry. So this, what this is, is the mimicry by a species, by a palatable species of an unpalatable or noxious species. So one common example of this is the hoverfly, many of which these hoverflies, though they have no sting, will mimic the kind of warning coloration of wasps and bees to scare away predators. This mimicry doesn't need to be per perfect to improve the survival of the species. So everything we've talked to up to now is about very general stuff as far as adaptation goes and kind of looking at it in a kind of meta perspective. But in this movie, what we're looking at is how people adapt to new circumstances quickly. Uh, most of the other stuff we've gone over has been like, oh, over many lifetimes, these animals and these plants change and, you know, how can... Uh, how, how can they survive best? But in this situation, we're looking at people who have lost a sense that they've had their entire lives and suddenly have to adapt and adjust. So that's the kind of stuff we'll go over next. So this first article we're going over is from Science Daily. So what these particular researchers were looking at is the brain uh, in people who are blind. And this is always kind of our go-to. It's always really important because our brain is really, has a lot of plasticity and is able to adjust and change in order to operate efficiently. And what these scientists found, this is actually from the UCLA Department of Neuro Neurology, they've confirmed that blindness actually causes structural changes in the brain, indicating that the brain reorganizes itself functionally in order to adapt to a loss in sensory output with vision. They actually found that the visual regions of the brain were smaller in volume in blind individuals than in sighted ones. However, for non-visual areas, the trend was reversed. They actually grew larger in the blind sample. So the researchers are saying here that the brains of blind individuals are compensating for this reduced volume in areas normally devoted to vision. And, you know, in an interview, they kind of talk about how this shows the exceptional plasticity of the brain and its ability to re reorganize itself after 
after a major input, like vision is lost. So what the brain is doing is attempting to compensate for the fact that a person can no longer see, and that this is particularly true that those of those who are blind since early infancy, which is, of course, a, de- uh, a really important developmental period. And actually, the younger you are, generally speaking, the more plastic your brain is, the more it can adjust. So what these researchers did is they used this really sensitive type of brain imaging called tensor-based morphometry, which detects really subtle changes in, in brain volume to examine the brains of three different groups. People who lost their sight before the age of five, those who lost their sight after 14, so those would be the people for our movie we'd be most interested in, and a control group of sighted individuals. So when they compared the two groups of blind individuals, the researchers found that the loss and gain of brain matter depended heavily on when the blindness occurred occurred. So you're actually going to get um, some reorganization no matter what. But if you lost your sight early, if you lost your sight as a child, the reorganization would be much more drastic and much more effective um, than those who lost their sight after the age of at, at the age of 14 or later. And like, you know, it mentions also in the article that for years and years, decades, we've made this assumption that people who lose their sight even after birth you know, have improved senses uh, that that will kind of take the place of vision. And we find that this is true, but not in a superpowered kind of way, but more in the brain is reorganizing itself and they have more efficient and greater volume in, in these other areas that make up for their loss of sight. All right, so this last article that we're talking about is about middle-aged and older adults and their adaptation to disability and how they cope with it. So, of course, if you're confronted with any kind of functional impairment as an adult, it becomes a really critical challenge that can put people at risk for subsequent problems like like mental health problems as well. And actually, age-related vision loss has been identified as the second most common disability among middle-aged and older adults. So this negative impact on functional ability and social activities has actually been shown to put people at risk for depression and a poor perceived quality of life. And a lot of evidence shows that coping is a key factor in this adaptation to this vision loss. But a lot of the prior research really focused more on how not to do things. They looked at maladaptive patterns of coping rather than learning what can actually be adaptive and helpful. So this study wanted to kind of fill that gap um, and figure out with middle age and older adults what will actually help. And they thought there might be two coping tendencies that could prevent depression and enable people to positively adjust to these age-related losses and declines. And these are assimilative and accommodative modes of coping. So the assimilative mode, which is goal pursuit, will reflect a persistent effort to actively adjust life circumstances to your own preferences. And the accommodative mode, which is flexible goal adjustment, these preferences and goals are adjusted to the situational constraint. So in this particular study, they recruited their participants from uh, a vision rehabilitation agency in the northeastern United States. So they were all 40 or older. Uh, They all spoke English. Um, They didn't have any other cognitive deficits, which is important because that can, you know, uh, cause issues with your results. And all these people had the onset of vision impairment within the past five years. So it was pretty recent. So they ended up getting 107 people um, that they put in kind of two groups by age, one 40 to 64 years as the middle age and older adults as 65 and up. So they gave them a bunch of measures. They looked at socio-demographic stuff like age, gender, race, and education, um, their vision status, 
whether or not they had received any vision rehabilitation, and if they had other functional disabilities. And then, of course, they were tested on these assimilative and accommodative coping tendencies and mental health outcomes, specifically depression symptoms. And as they, they kind of thought would happen, people who reported level of vision impairment severity and functional disability were positively linked to both social dysfunction and depressive symptoms. Also, those who reported a decline in vision over the last six months were likely to show more mental health problems. And they actually found in the end that one of these coping strategies worked and one of them absolutely did not. So the one that worked is the accommodative strategy. And this makes perfect sense, of course, because the, if you remember, the accommodative strategy are the ones who are working within the constraints instead of being really focused in going after their goals and, and getting them no matter what the circumstance. And of course, in this situation, there are many more constraints that they're not used to. So if they're going to use accommodative, they're going to do really well. But if they're using this assimilative way, then they're probably going to be in for a lot of disappointment and actually will lead to more difficult mental health outcomes. So you kind of have to, when you get these, when you, if you want to adapt, you have to also not only adapt to, in this case, not being able to see, but how you deal with your life, how you cope with difficult situations. And if you're able to cope in a way that works within those constraints, you can actually be really successful. But if you don't, it's going to be a really hard time for you. All right, so that's it for our psychological section. Well, we'll take a little break, and then when we come back, we'll bring back Chris Maynard to talk about blindness. Watched the movie, check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I <laughs> didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, what's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new, or possibly old, breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back to talk about the movie. We're back to talk about blindness. So um, we kind of mentioned, I think, a little bit in the intro, a little bit of history for you with this movie. For me, this was a this was a first time watch, but I was like, given the cast, like, how can I not like this movie? Like, this has kind of three of my favorite actors working today. So, I mean, how bad could it be? Uh, but we'll talk about how bad it could be. Uh, but what about your history with this? Well, it's not unlike you, where the pedigree behind the film, where you have – this is based on a novel uh, from an author who won the Pulitzer Prize, mm -hmm. uh, based on a director who was following up um, City of God and um, Constant Gardener, mm -hmm. two wonderful movies. Uh, so it felt like you know, with Julianne Moore at, in the lead in this film and just a phenomenal cast supporting her, how could this go wrong? Um, <laughs> how indeed. I, I would say you know this – Danny Glover is a wonderful actor. I actually really appreciate him and think that he's misused. Um, but he does a lot of movies that feel like he's trying to pay a mortgage. And this definitely fits into one of those movies, which is yep. so weird because it's this is one of the most well-made 
bad movies I've ever seen, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think you're far off there. I, I did like it's I mean, we kind of talked about the cast, but I mean, you've got Mark Ruffalo, Julianne Moore, uh, Gael Gar- Garcia Bernal. Like this is a great, great cast. And I remember I think Danny Glover is one. We'll talk about it a little later, but he's one of those actors that he can't. He can't disappear into a role because I think we know him so well, like especially us that like grew up with Lethal Weapon and that kind of thing. Like immediately my mind goes to that. So it's very hard to take him seriously. And this is a very serious role. So it makes me think like, you know, it might be a little bit of a miscasting here because I actually I mean, we'll talk about the writing, but some of his stuff is the stuff I like the best. But it's so hard for me to pull myself away from that's Danny Glover. Like he's just not that kind of actor. But that Mur- Murtaugh shouldn't be doing this shit. Yeah, exactly. Shouldn't there be a bomb on a toilet somewhere? Like this is. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the director, um, who I'm not going to say his name uh, because I don't want to butcher it. But you did mention he has quite, quite the pedigree. I mean, I actually haven't seen City of God or The Constant Gardener, but these are movies that are very well thought of. And I actually read in the kind of IMDb trivia that he, the first screening, he he sat the author down and had him watch the movie and the author broke down in tears and said like, this is perfect. I never thought my book would, would be on screen in this way. This is fantastic. So we're going to like shit on a Pulitzer prize winner. So that'll be fun. Uh, so, <laughs> Well, I, I think that that's one of the bigger problems that you have with adaptations, not, mm-hmm. not the theme of the movie, but actually taking a book that's well-regarded. Right. Um, if you look at the films of Stephen King, which I've been going back and actually doing a retrospective of, all of his films going through mm-hmm. and kind of just putting how they work out. And it seems like the ones that for him that he's the most distanced from, those are the ones that are the best adaptations. The ones where they like took the this shining kernel of an idea <laughs> like the shining. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, God bless Stephen I, King. That guy has no chill. Like he still <laughs> is online, like shitting on Kubrick every chance he gets. Anytime someone mentions Kubrick shining, he's like, that movie sucks. That is not my book. And I was like, man, you signed the contract. Calm down. <laughs> But those the things can exist separately. Yes, and we got we got an accurate uh, adaptation of his novel, and unfortunately, that TV movie um, it just it's in the shadow of one of the greatest horror films of all time. Right. So it is something completely different. And for a TV movie, I'd say it's definitely an easier sit than something like it. Um, but that there's a lot of room for improvement over something like that. So uh, p- point being, you can pay fan service to people that enjoy novels. You can pay, uh, actually pay service to the man who wrote it and get these themes, but you kind of lose sight of what the film should be. Right. As opposed to just a sight of like making a good movie, like instead of just being like, I like this book too. Like, so it's not helpful. Where does, where does this fall apart though? Because it's really well constructed. Um, cinematography is great here. Yeah. I think that it it does a really like every frame in this movie is something that you can almost hang up on your wall. It's a really not a beautiful film, but it's very striking. Um, yes. Actually, I take that back. Somebody that would want to put up frames from this movie in their house <laughs> belongs in a Cronenberg movie. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I think for me, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, I think it falls apart with the script, not the direction. Yeah. I think this is actually a very well-directed film. He clear, I mean, even if he didn't have that pedigree we talked about, like just watching this movie, you know you're in the hands of somebody who knows what he's doing. Like even from the very opening shot, like there's this intense close-up on a traffic light. Um, which like gives us that focus of this film and how important vision is and how dangerous it is to be without that sense when you've had it your entire life. And that's essentially what happens right after that first scene is one of our major characters loses that sense and everything goes wrong for him immediately. So I actually love the way this movie opens. 
And that it's actually everything in that opening sequence with that particular character works really well. And it's once we start getting into familiar faces mm-hmm. that the movie starts to fall apart for me. And I'm, there's a part of me that's always wondered with this that, and now thinking about it, that if this movie was recast with unknowns or at least unknowns to me, right? What, if I wasn't carrying that Danny Glover baggage, if I, mm-hmm. you know, Julianne Moore is someone that can disappear into a film, but there is, there, I don't know. I'm not sure what that is, but for that opening scene, I'm really engaged with it. And I, it still gets me every time. It still yeah. works really well um, with the way that he's having to deal with this thing, this onset blindness just suddenly comes on. It's a really interesting concept. And then where it ends up going is familiar territory. But I think that it's handled in a way that could be entertaining. It could be an engaging right. film, could say a lot about us as a society, yeah. but it just doesn't work. Yeah, and I think he also does a great job at disorienting the audience. Like all the scenes of like the ultra white and all the kind of there's a couple quick cuts in here yeah. that are designed for you not to be able to follow it, which is perfect for what this movie is about. And it actually got me thinking that for an American audience, I wonder like you mentioned casting unknowns and I think that would be a much better choice, but I think this movie works best if it's shot and filmed in a language that I don't understand and I'm forced to read subtitles because that's even more disorienting. Like you have to really really, really focus, which these people aren't able to do. And I found myself wishing that this wasn't an English language film. I think it actually might work better. And is that something if you were to take only portions of it, or you do have the entire segments that are in foreign countries Mm -hmm. and you just have them in their native tongue and you don't subtitle it and that adds to the, or, you know, and you tell the story visually through that part and then have those other pieces of it that you I think it would fit with the theme of the movie. It would definitely make mm-hmm. it even <laughs> less approachable. Right. But it, it, but I've seen that and it does work. Right. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up with you is there's – I wonder what you thought of this. There are – because everyone is blind, there is a – there are a bunch of scenes in this movie of just like random nudity of people just walking around without clothes. So what did you think of that directorial choice? Because I don't think there's, there's probably nothing in the script. Maybe it's in the book, but I doubt there's anything in the script about like that has to be there. So that seems like a choice that he made. It's something that even the creepy 12-year-old that still is running around in the back of my gray matter somewhere would not be able to get a bone or two. There's right. nothing about this, this nudity that yeah, is it's not titillating. or titillating. Yeah, it's very all. awkward. It's very like – and it jumps out at you but not in the way that a scene with nudity in most Hollywood films jumps out at you. Like it's shot in soft light. Everyone's really attractive. Like these are – a lot of the people who are naked in this movie are normal-looking people – and normal looking people when they're just walking around naked are not titillating because they're not performative in that way. It's just like a naked human body on the screen. And you're <laughs> just for a moment, you're like, what is happening? Especially because in a lot of those sequences, like 99% of everyone else in the shot is clothed. And there's this one, this one vulnerable body just walking around. Yeah. And that's something that would happen, you know, and you do have people that are having those moments where they're taking advantage of the blind or, I guess that's the way they're dealing with it, where you do see it in that sense that people would approach us differently. Right. Um, and well, you the have the car start, thief you know, in the very beginning of this film who's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll help you out. No problem. And he'll take your car. <laughs> Sorry, you can't drive it. Like it's, it definitely shows the, the negative side of humanity. This is not 
is not necessarily a movie. I mean, there are parts of it that are, but it's not a movie that is focused on like, let's show the good that comes out. And there are, there are these scenes of people helping one another, but even within those scenes, there's kind of the world outside that is doing terrible things to these people who are in this horrible situation. Well, and even the, I guess our heroine, uh, the Julianne Moore, the liar, (laughs) she's, I mean, she's very human. She's deeply flawed. Uh, she's not coming from a place where she's trying to save everyone. In fact, she almost has to be forced into it, Mm -hmm. um, where it becomes the only alternative at that point where she does lead these people out of the situation. So, um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting film, and it's one of those ones where I could imagine hearing people talk about this and saying, "Oh God, that's something I actually want to watch." But right, yeah, it just yeah, doesn't. No. It's something about it just doesn't quite add up, and it's it's really unfortunate because given the subject matter and given the talent involved, it's something that when I looked at it for for this because we're doing it, you know, based on another movie about blindness, I was like, "Oh, this is perfect. Mm-hmm. It has this all star cast, this great director. This is going to be great." And then I'm watching it like. This should have been great. What what happened here? Like there's there's some problems here. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the acting. So I think my big issue with this, some of this is script level, but some of this is acting too. And it pains me to say this because it's about Mark Ruffalo and Julianne Moore, because I think this movie hinges on the idea that you have to care about these characters and you have to believe their relationship. And I never sure. and I never really did. Their conversations didn't feel real. Their affection didn't feel real. So then when later in the movie he kind of like betrays her sexually like there's no emotion packed into that you're just like well that was a thing that happened i guess we'll move on (laughs) you know and it shouldn't be because you know he had sex with another woman and she's the only one who could see it like it's terrible and yet as a viewer i was just kind of left numb by the whole thing well i think that that mirrors who she is as a person um Mm -hmm. i think it's true to her character honestly if you look at her marriage that was a that was a loveless marriage in the beginning of the film. If you look at yeah. the way that they would communicate with each other, it felt as it, it actually felt slightly more loving than the one she was in this person that she was committed to for the rest of her life. Felt like too many PhDs um, in that relationship. Like it was just like, let's use big vocabulary words all the time. Yeah. Was that, like, that, that was definitely, that, that was like the, uh, I don't know, the mumblecore version of Frasier. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that is the perfect <laughs> the perfect comparison, sadly. Uh, but, <laughs> but what did you think of Gael Garcia Bernal? Like he plays like I mean, just almost like a cackling villain in this I, movie, like he, from the start. And and it's upsetting because I think he's a really good actor and with what he's given, he does very well. But there's no change. There's no growth. He just kind of walks in and then does terrible things and then does more terrible things until he, you know, until he ends his ends. And that's it. And that that doesn't give me much to hang on to. And I think there's all these sequences that are interesting as far as human nature, like how far will we go and how quickly. But I don't think the movie takes the time to comment on that. It just shows you how awful everything is and, you know, these extended sequences of rape and violence. And it was just like, but let's actually discuss that. Let's talk about that in the film instead of just shocking the audience. Well, I I think that um, this can't really hinge on the actors Mm. because these are actors that are too consistently good. Um, that are given material that seems like it should work. Mm-hmm. I think this is honestly um, either editing, mm. choosing certain performance pieces, or directing, where um, you can't really hang that on them because this is, these are actors that have been phenomenal in other pieces. So yeah. I think they were being led this direction and that the lack of humanity is something they weren't allowed to bring to this mm, role. And, maybe. you know, 
that could be something that they wanted this to be about. That could be the feeling that we are having is the, that's the goal of the movie Mm -hmm. that they don't want this to be an enjoyable sit. They want you to kind of walk out feeling uncomfortable and maybe this is supposed to lead to a conversation afterwards. This is supposed to be a film that you do, you know, kind of, it sticks with you a little bit afterwards, but it doesn't have that power Mm -hmm. because it it doesn't, it's feels like it's in service of nothing. Like you were saying it's, you know, I don't, it's giving me a question and I don't necessarily want an answer, but I, I want a little bit of leading, you know, just yeah. like the okay, now push me out the door with something. You're just right. kind of give me a clue. Leaving me like, there. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I actually think my favorite performance in this movie is an actor I'd never heard of named uh, I'm going to butcher this too, uh, Yusuke <laughs> Iseya, uh, who plays kind of the first blind man, the J- the Japanese character. In this. Oh yeah, I yeah, thought he yeah. was excellent. Like he's great. Not only his performance of being blind, which is something difficult to do for someone who is. Who you know? Who has sight? That's a really difficult uh, thing to do to make look real and not look comical. But also his relationship with his wife and his his kind of difficulties with the decisions that are being made. That stuff all read as very real. Uh, and I think for me, it's really the only character that felt real and grounded. That's somebody that I wish we would have spent more time with. Mm-hmm. You know that that's a film that I kind of wish you could deviate off. And spend it, it's weird because this almost feels like it's the pilot for a TV show. Right. And despite my my lack of interest in this film, if you could spend more time in this world and explore some of these characters more, and it could be something interesting there because mm-hmm. they're doing a hell of a good job with the world building. It just doesn't pay off. What did you think of the other actors' like performance of being blind? Did you find it convincing, or did it just feel like actors uh, with eyes that were working that were? pushing their hands out and trying to feel nothing gets to like Christmas story level where, you know, (laughs) Ralphie has too much. soap. if only (laughs) just go all the way bad. Come on. Like, (laughs) there's nothing like that. Nobody with a tin can, like feeling the walls kind of thing. So I would watch that movie too. That sounds great. So, yeah, I I think that it's the the acting overall. It's, I don't think it's bad. I, I think that, and the and nobody stood out as playing blind poorly to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the the only question I had was with Danny Glover's eye patch. Um, <laughs> Take that thing off! What are you doing? <laughs> Does that seem necessary at that point? No, it made me feel like they were just trying to disguise him, um, as opposed okay. to it actually serving. And it doesn't work because he has such a recognizable voice. Um, but I actually bringing up Danny Glover, I really liked his performance a lot. Um, I liked the kind of the. The uh, the kind of subplot of him like not wanting Vision to come back because he yeah. realizes like I don't fit in with these people if you just look at me like I'm you know I'm older I, I can't get around as well like this is kind of become this great equalizer and I think the movie actually did spend some time and have something interesting to say about that I think that's the one place that it really did that well. And yeah, I agree. And I think that Danny Glover, uh, I know you had some problems with not being able to um, distance yourself from Lethal Weapon with this, but I think he does good work here. Yes, um, I agree. Yeah. So he, and he's something you're, I think you're right. You're onto something there where his voice is just so, it's so Danny Glover. Right. That, that I mean, can you could be, be looking away from the screen and the first line, you're like, what? <laughs> Danny Glover is this? How did we get here? <laughs> like, 
who yeah. made this decision. But yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. I think overall the the acting is really good. There's just not there's not a lot in the script and there's not a lot in direction that they could kind of hinge upon. Uh but mm. I thought, you know, in talking about the idea of playing blind, I think the person with the hardest job here is Julianne Moore. Uh because it's interesting because she has to be performative in a way so the audience gets the point that she is acting like she's blind but can see. But also you don't want to go too far with that because then it becomes comical and almost a farce of her like pretending not to be able to see. And I think she does a good job of like towing that line. How great would this have been if this would have become, you know, sort of like a French bedroom comedy where you <laughs> it's it just in the third act. Suddenly she's just, you know, you you kick on yakety sacks and she's jumping from room to room. It would have been wonderful. Yeah. And who would have known? <laughs> like <laughs> Everyone else there is blind. It's fine. You're good. Just go all out. <laughs> yeah. But of course, like, you know, you expect at the worst a solid performance from Julianne Moore. She's one sure. of those actors that I think sometimes you become a victim of your own success, where if you don't do something that's amazing, you're like, come on, Julianne Moore. What? This is not one for the ages. How dare you get it together? <laughs> and it's like a perfectly fine, serviceable, good performance. And same thing with Mark Ruffalo here. I just think they weren't given enough. I feel like I got this just insight to your mind right there, which I'm actually very happy with that you, you walking out of the theater or, you know, after screening and just come on, Julianne, Moore, <laughs> get it together. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty much how it goes all the time. <laughs> like, that's just I like give pep talks to actors that they can't hear. That's come on. You can do this. Come on. If there were intermissions, it would be terrible. Like that was just come on the second <laughs> half, really pull it together. But <laughs> All right. Um, so let's talk to talk about the script, uh, which is my biggest issue with this movie. Like we talked about Julianne Moore and Mark Ruffalo and their, you know, you know, five star Scrabble playing words that they're using. They have this whole discussion about the difference between agnosia and agnostic and if those words are tied together. And it's just like nobody talks like this. Nobody. I've, I'm going to have a Ph.D. and I don't talk like this. This is crazy. Like I get it. Like they're both smart. And that's and we're trying to get across the idea that they're not intimately connecting. And that that is achieved, but it, it's achieved in such a way that feels really false to me. That was one thing I was actually thinking about um, <laughs> that as far as with the writing of this film, because it's something where I think you can get away with that in a novel. Yes. A lot easier. There's a lot of that can. in this movie where I started. I didn't realize it was a book until after I had seen the movie. And then now thinking back on it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that works in the written form. That works in the written form. I'm sure there's much more description about what the experience of this blindness is like. And that should that would be a really cool story to read. But putting this on film, it's almost like like we talked about, like the kind of love letter to a, a work of fiction that you're like, well, we got to have it like this because it was like that in the book. And maybe it doesn't work that way on film. They are different mediums. Well, there's things that can come across in a book that – you're just so inside the character's head that dialogue and sort of these interchanges, you're seeing so much more of it mm -hmm. that you're able to forgive so much more because you have this entryway to them. And in film, you just have their expression and you have what they're saying, the words they're using mm -hmm. and how they're delivering them. And it's, you're, you're working with far less. You know, yeah. There's you no internal these... monologue. There's no, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so, and I think that when you try stylized dialogue in films, it's it can really work. But even when it really does work, it puts people off. Um, I right. think the go-to that most people think of is probably, I don't know, it would be two comedies. If you think of something like Juno, 
Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of stylized dialogue really puts a lot of people off and they're just like, I couldn't get into it because right. of that or it works for you. See, or I liked it like, in that movie. It's like throughout the entire film, though, whereas this yeah. is just this one isolated scene of nonsense. And you're just like what? in the rest of the movie, like people are talking <laughs> like normal human beings. I'm like, if you're going to do that, like, let's just let's do it. Yeah, I, I actually – that's the thing though. If they were to commit to that type of writing, I think I would actually be OK with it uh-huh. um, because if I watch something like My Dinner with Andre, um, they're having elevated conversation like right. that the entire time and I actually – it I totally can get works. Into that. Yeah. It absolutely works. But I think going back and forth between that and having this high-stakes thriller at the same time, it doesn't really work so well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing I was – I can't decide – quite where I stand on it. There are, there are a lot of sequences of military overreaction, let's say in this movie <laughs> where like, just like when these, these soldiers are in no danger and they're like, yeah, I think I'm just going to shoot that guy in the head. I, th- I think we're going to do that. And I get, I get what they're trying to put across. I get, it's this idea that everyone is starting to become blind and it's really terrifying. You don't want them to touch you, but there is mm-hmm. this clear separation there's a wall between them. You are in no danger, at least no more danger than you were if they were walking around 20 feet away from you. So it seemed like they were trying to push this angle of of fear being being the dominant emotion here and there being some real repercussions for actions. But it just it seemed it seemed overdone to me. What was your experience of that? Well, watching this again and watching it with what's going on with politics right now it feels like actually um like a slightly subdued take (laughs) on military yes when i mean we literally are in a time right now when we're slashing the state department we're slashing negotiations in favor of building up military to the levels that are completely unnecessary right um so yeah i think that that's absolutely what it was going for Mm -hmm. and sometimes satire sometimes commentary needs to be completely obvious so that nobody walking out misses the point. possibly miss it yeah <laughs> that's true there's another thing that's totally a nitpick but like actually bothered me there's a sequence where they go back to their house after they kind of escape from this camp um and they just kind of walk into their their apartment i was like did they keep their keys with them the whole time like how because <laughs> they didn't have a sequence where they like broke down the door or they went oh the door's open we should be careful they just kind of like you know, wander into our nice condominium apartment. Let's all hang out. And I was just like, <laughs> really, after the sequence of like being attacked for meat and like this very zombie like <laughs> scene, yeah. and then we're just like, just open the door. It seemed very strange to me and very out of place. Is you know, it's funny you bring up the idea of this being kind of a, a zombie movie because it is a zombieless zombie movie. Really, yeah. it's playing with that idea. Um, this post-apocalyptic film, that particular scene, no, it didn't really stand out to me Mm -hmm. um because i in my those sorts of things i assume there's a buy-in with it and if they had every moment it's like well in that scene before he didn't have shoes on now he has shoes on (laughs) it takes place 10 minutes later i can fill in the blank that he put on shoes in that time (laughs) and not see it as a gaffe i'm okay with fair enough if you spell everything out to that degree dear god every movie would be 43 hours long Well, and it's true they didn't spell out any other goddamn thing in this movie so why bother (laughs) with keys in your pocket i mean yeah it's it's actually a really really good point um so uh let's talk about the production value so i think the production value here is actually really good i really like the sound design of this movie like it kind of in a lot of ways feels like a a panicked heartbeat Throughout this entire movie, I like the 
the very simple kind of whiteout trick, I think that really works. And I think actually the geography and the building of this, you know, what's essentially a camp uh, for these people who have gone blind, I think that stuff really works too. I think they clearly did a lot of work envisioning what this world was going to look like. Yeah, actually, it's um, the production design of the film. It's just right from the get go. You can that's it's part of that thing with this being such a well-constructed movie um, that it can be misleading in a way. Just the way that they do this overexposure from all the white light that just comes out of every window. So it's just you can't see anything from it. And the, the whiteouts instead of blackouts like you were talking about where mm-hmm. just everything goes into this, you know, compl- it's overwhelming at times and disorienting. And I think it just really does work. Um but it's not in service of a story. Right. So it's it's pretty to look at and it's evocative and it's interesting. But if it's not servicing the story, is it pointless? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Actually, <laughs> like bringing up the kind of whiteout, it was also something that annoyed me from a script level that they felt the need to explain – that this was different from regular blindness. I think mm-hmm. – I don't know. I didn't need that. Like I – I have some idea in my head of what being blind would be like, and it would be this absence of light, right? So that makes perfect sense to me that this is something different. But I think they had two or three scenes of exposition about how this is so different from anything we've ever seen. And I was like, you know, one is good. We could have the scene with Mark Ruffalo in the beginning with the Japanese character, and we could discuss that. And then we could just leave that behind. And every time we fade to white, we know, okay, someone is infected. And they're going blind now from this new disease. But it seemed like it kept coming up, this repetitive nature. And I was like, we're not going to explain anything else, but we're going to explain this three or four times. (laughs) And I think that's, again, that comes down to the adaptation thing where you're spending, you know, you have a 700 page book and you can spend this amount of time going into this. And it's something that probably if you read the book, I haven't. Um, If it is explained in the book the way that I'm assuming it is, it's something that feels very important and Mm -hmm. integral to the story. But I really think at some point you need to hand over that screenplay to somebody that has never read that book that won't be so precious about every word and make sure that it'll still work. Yeah, I think the only thing I didn't I didn't completely like when it came to production value is kind of once we leave the camp, I felt like. I felt like there was nothing new there. Like when we get to the city, it's like, you know, we've seen that like every you talked about this is a zombie list zombie. It's movie. not Star Wars. You don't like need to go off to like the ice planet. afterwards. <laughs> yes, you do. See, more entertaining already. Let's go there. <laughs> you have this could be a whole new world. But it was just kind of like I I guess I didn't need the zombie sequence. I felt like the movie is actually more interesting if when it's just these main characters. When it's just focused on them and their interactions and how difficult that can be. I don't need this kind of evil outside force that's attacking Julianne Moore when no one else can help her like that. That seemed like overkill to me. Like I didn't I didn't need those moments. Yeah, I I agree. It's it. But then again, this is a movie that it's at that point, you know, where this is over two hours or right around two hours long, Mm -hmm. something like that. And it's. You know, it kind of feels like it overstays its welcome. And by the time you're getting to that point, you're really just wanting it to be over. Right. Um, I think if this was coming earlier in the film, then it might have had more power um, and, you know, it would have actually carried more weight. But at this point, you just don't really care anymore and you just want it to be over and you're done hanging out with these people. Yeah. And I actually think you could have two shorter, very interesting films here. You could have just the stuff that happens in the camp and you could have, you know, blindness, too, uh, when (laughs) when we leave and then kind of surviving out there in the real world and dealing with this process of 
whose vision is coming back and is this going to happen for everybody and does everybody actually want that like there there's interesting things there but because we spent so long in this camp i mean it feels like you spent two hours of runtime in this camp because so much happens even though there's no there's no real build to those moments either it's just kind of like and then this bad thing happens and then rape happens and then murder <laughs> happens and it's just like okay <laughs> like <laughs> Any of these are bad enough. I don't need like – and I think there's like two or three sequences of this kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, this rape subplot that keeps coming back. And it's it's already awful. <laughs> like the first time anything happens, it's terrible. Like as a viewer, like for me, there I think there's only so much – there's only so much trauma I can take. When I watch a movie like this, like the point is already across, like we get that this is a terrible situation and that this other group is taking advantage of the power here. And there's some interesting things to talk about, about, you know, is there anyone in that camp who actually doesn't agree with this? Or has it just become this total group think where everyone goes along with it? Either one of those stories is interesting, but instead it's like shock value. Well, it comes across that way because it's something that's so powerful that if you're not you're, if you you got to tread lightly with it and you mm-hmm. got to know what you're doing and you have to handle it the right way because it can come out completely wrong um you know you go back and you watch something like the original evil dead now mm-hmm. and that that completely takes you out of the movie um we're going back me. to tree rape again is that is we that can where go we're back at to tree okay. rape. That, that's you know when i think of sort of as far as over the top and just unnecessary rape, yeah, tree rape would definitely be up there. I'm sure there. this author, this um, director are really happy that we're talking about blindness and go straight okay. to tree rape. That's Well, then I'll, I'll go to – what was it? Uh, Straw Dogs. Same uh, sort of thing there. Yeah, where, sure. Where the, when they do the rape in that film, when there is rape in that film, that they make it seem almost enjoyable from the point of view of the woman. Mm-hmm. And that's just – so off-putting to me that I can't get past that in that film. That's one that's regarded very highly, the the original. Yeah. Um, and so I I just I don't know. It it's something that I understand why people want to deal with that subject. It's something that should be talked about, mm-hmm. but it's something when you fuck up, you really fuck up. Yeah. Like like you said, tread lightly. Like this is yeah. not like if you're gonna make a movie that involves rape or sexual assault. I mean, bring women on to help write the screenplay, like bring like groups that uh, actually know about rape and why it happens and what the reaction of the person being raped is like, instead of just being Mm -hmm. like, well, this would be really effective. So I'm going to do it because I'm the director. I'm the writer. But at the same time, it's um, you can get you can go too much into that and it becomes after school special. Mm -hmm. So you do still at the same time have to have that. Yes. And how do you balance that? That's something that it's kind of like that um, Orrin Hatch quote or whatever that was when he was talking about the definition of pornography. I don't know what mm. it is, but I know it when I see I know it. it when I see it, yeah. it's, sort of, it's the same thing here. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, I know when it's too far and I know when it's, you know, you're, you're holding back on it. Yeah, and like I, I don't know that, what the line is, but I know when it crossed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think it's almost more offensive when you pull the punch mm. and you don't show the impact of it and right. you make light of it. That's more offensive to me than at least you tried to show the impact and you went too far and you actually offended the audience. Right. Then I can see that as being something. But Do you yeah. feel like this movie shows the effect of it? No. no yeah, not, I didn't either. Well. Like even though it was kind of like disgusting to watch, it still felt like – 
like it just became a plot point instead of an emotion point. It was just like, and then this happened because everyone knows rape is terrible. So this is the line for the audience to know that this person is truly a villain. Like this person has gone way yeah. too far. So, But is that something that it could or perhaps if you were being so kind to the film that and our particular theme with this being adaptation that people can get used to and accept and live with some pretty gnarly shit. Yeah. I just feel like in this movie, it happens way too quickly. Okay. Like the, the jumps. And I get it. It's a situation that we, God, hopefully, we'll never know what it's like to go through a situation like this. So who knows how people will react in these really stressful situations. But as an outside viewer, as an outside viewer it just felt like, okay, we're just going to jump to that. We're just going to go, okay, we're going to 11 on this one. Okay. <laughs> you know, and it didn't feel yeah, natural or real to me. Yeah. Um, so this might be hard for you, but what is one of your fa- – let's say what's your most memorable Speaking scene. Of rape. <laughs> Sorry. What, what, do, what do you find – which scenes do you find memorable in blindness, either in a good or a I, bad way? I think we, we kind of talked about it, but it's that opening sequence mm-hmm. um, where he's in traffic and he can't see anymore. And just the way that that – him making his way back to his apartment and being taken advantage of two separate times during yeah. that you know, 20-minute period, it's – pretty rough and it's something that it's it's very memorable because it's setting up this movie that i've watched twice that i never i've yet to be paid off on so it's almost like (laughs) maybe the third time will really do it for you chris you know it's like i keep going back and watching top gun eventually goose isn't gonna die (laughs) oh that's sadder than anything in this movie that is the worst (laughs) for me the scene that really stands out is also connected to that character but when that character and his wife are reunited in the camp like that is a really moving moment and like just that you know 20 30 seconds is more affecting than anything between our other two main characters like for good or bad like that you can tell these are people that that care about one another and even if they're in this terrible situation like even in the beginning when she first finds him kind of on the floor and he's like broken a vase she's annoyed with him but you can tell Mm -hmm. immediately once she figures things out that like this is someone she really cares about and it all kind of comes to fruition in that moment when they find each other again and that really worked i wanted like you said give me more of that let's follow these people they're way more interesting than the two phds who are talking about agnosia and agnostic like shut up because they have humanity still right yeah. And the rest of these people, they seem devoid of it before they went into this situation, and they're not really uh, examples of it when they're in it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, towards the end, maybe Julianne Moore's finding a sliver of it, but that's yeah. really about it. And those characters are not people I really want to hang out with. The, the other ones that seem like they should have been the leads of the film. Yeah. And even if you want to talk about Sonia Braga and Danny Glover, like their story is more interesting than Mark Ruffalo and Julian Moore. It's really sad because there's like six or seven main characters and the two least interesting ones are the leads (laughs) of this film. And I think – I think I get what they're going for with this idea of like wouldn't it be interesting to force these people who clearly are not connected anymore – to lose connection even further and how do they react and that is an interesting topic but the way it's put across in this movie just becomes sadly really boring and you just like stop caring about these people and you're like i don't care if he fucked that lady like good for him it's fine yeah <laughs> like yeah so that, that, you're absolutely right that something like this loses you because it becomes boring because it's too bloated right. um and i it's you know, which is weird because The Constant Gardener, I think, is about two and a half hours long, mm-hmm. something like that. And that's a movie 
same director that absolutely has you, at least for me, and I've seen it a couple of times now at, on just white knuckling it through the last mm-hmm. 45 minutes of the movie and just absolutely destroyed by the ending of it. So right. that's one that he landed perfectly just here. It's no, it just didn't he, quite come together. Yeah. Needed a different editor. And maybe that's something where after the success of his first two films that people said, well, fuck it. Man. Why question at this point? Yeah. He's but two for two. It, Let's go. Yeah. I think his most recent directing work is doing like the Olympics in Brazil or something like that. So <laughs> not quite a uh, moving up from, uh, from city of God and the constant gardener. Like, no, but it's definitely a leg up for me. So I can't talk shit. Fair enough. The man's working. I mean, good for him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so let's talk about the theme a little bit. So of course the theme is adaptation. Um, and I, there's You're two- welcome. Yes, very good. Uh, I love it when my guests are like, you should do this theme. And I'm like, great. I don't have to think about that while I'm watching the movie. That sounds good. And for a movie that's about blindness, I felt like, okay, I, I think things will come up. <laughs> like, I think we'll be okay. Um, and there are two things that really stood out to me. Um, there's all the sequences of them, like, kind of building this kind of rope system to kind of get around. I thought that was a really good example of adaptation. And it made me, it made me curious, like, not necessarily in this movie, but I'd like to see how people who recently lost their sight because i think there's a difference between someone who was born blind and that has been their experience not to say that's not difficult or not challenging but that has been the only experience they've known and people who are in their 30s and 40s and suddenly lose probably the sense that we depend the most on i mean i think that's that's fair i think we depend more on our sight than probably just about anything so I, i did feel like they adjusted they adapted pretty damn quick to this situation but i like that they actually showed that well, I think that you have when it's something that's not just you dealing with this by yourself and going mm. to your meetings and, you know, kind of going to your therapist and helping you work through this, you know, uh, that kind of thing, finding those tools that way. When you have a group of people that have no roadmap of how to deal with this and they're left to figure it out on their own, it's not unlike something like um, Lord of the Flies. You know, you throw a bunch of kids on the island. Eventually, they're going to they're form a society and they're going right. to become tribal and they're going to work things out and in their own way. And I think that's what, you know, a group of blind people would do as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I did like that. They actually brought up the kind of difference between being, having history with blindness. They did have one character who yeah. had been blind his entire life and then just kind of got roped into this camp. Cause okay, you're blind, get in there. And he was someone who interacted much better with the environment. And I liked that they, they actually showed that. But the other thing that stood out to me in a negative way is this, this idea of, you know, uh, Gail Garcia Bernal's character like becoming king essentially and I thought that was a really interesting thing to bring into this movie how someone sees an opportunity and grabs it you know instead of working together he's like no I'm gonna get mine I'm gonna save me before anyone else but that's something that I think would probably happen Mm -hmm. um there's something that's really gross and it's just to be honest about humanity that we not only are there people that will be opportunistic in those moments, but there's a great number of us that want to be led in that way. Also, yeah, we want, we really do. There's something about us that I I think most of us want to just be told what to do. No gray area. No, let's work this out together. A bunch of sheep. Just get it done. (laughs) If if you're telling me to come to the conversation with ideas, that's scary. Mm -hmm. If you're telling, cause I have a responsibility in that. Now, if you're just telling me what to do, I can say, yeah, this guy's an asshole, but I have to do it. Right. I have no – there's no 
um, investment on my behalf. You know, right. I can do it, but I have to. So that's what's going on. And I think that's, I, I do like that part of it. Cause I think that would probably happen. And it does happen in most, uh, societies to some degree. There's very few yeah. examples of cooperative societies. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, if you look at psychological studies, like going all the way back to Stanley Milgram, who created these yeah. experiments based on Nazi Germany, that people respond to authority. And in that case, all they needed was a fucking lab coat and just say, do it. And we're like, okay, zap. Like you yeah, told that's me where to they do were it. shocking the people yeah. and they're increasing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And in this case, like you don't have that visual cue, but you do have someone who is like getting on this microphone on this loudspeaker and telling you exactly how things are going to happen. So it's like, okay, I guess that's what we're going to do because he has a gun. Like who knows? Like granted he can't see, but I don't want to get hit accidentally. So everybody better fall in line. And I thought that was actually done pretty well, both within his camp and outside of that camp where people like basically just kind of lined up for the slaughter. Like, okay, I guess we have to do this to save everyone else. So we're going to we're going to get in line and we're going to do this. So I I think yeah. from a psychological perspective, I think that was that was the best portion of this movie and the thing that really hit home as realistic and something that would happen. Unfortunately, I mean, we talked about at the beginning of this episode, we talked about compliance. Like this is the same <laughs> idea, like some guy yeah. on a microphone saying this is what you're going to do if you want to eat. OK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just people responding to a perceived authority figure. Mm hmm. In that regard. And it's, you know, and we have all these things that are just wired into us that we don't even, we're not even aware of, be it, you know, just like you said, somebody in a lab coat, somebody in military dress, somebody, a a male figure as opposed to a female figure, just all these sorts of things that we react to differently. Yeah. I mean, even, even things as minimal as someone taller than you comes into play. Like we see that as authority. So, you know, we have, like you said, we have these things like from, thousands and thousands of years just built into us and it takes a lot of effort to break through that and it's one of those it's interesting because you ask people what would you do in this situation and nobody says like oh i I would definitely press the button i would definitely electrocute that person everyone says no no i wouldn't but when you're in that situation you're in that group think it's totally different and there's only a handful of people that actually stood up in that particular experiment from my understanding of it that said no i'm not doing this yeah i mean i think it was like less than 20 percent but people, yeah. like it was like 13%. It was a really small number. And that's and, terrifying. And did they play with the person in the lab coat as far as that being a male versus a female and how that I dynamic? Think, I'm pretty sure given the time, it was all male just okay. because of, you know, what was going on culturally at that time. <laughs> but they had they had different situations where the person would be in the next room telling them. And that mm-hmm. worked pretty well. But then it, they had them move into the room and actually tell them do it right now, then they would be much, much more likely to, to actually do it. So even things is how close you are, like physically from that person has an effect. Yeah. That's it's scary shit. Yeah, it absolutely is. Humans are fucked up. We're terrible. Just that's (laughs) the weird thing is though, the person in that role of authority, it feels like a lot of times that they're masking Mm -hmm. that they, the reason they need to have that much power, that much control is from, just dealing with insecurity oh, and yeah. misplaced and the way that we'll fall in line is also coming from the same sort of emotional state in a way yep. or psychological state, but we're just re the way that we cope with it is the complete opposite. Right. And if you, if you take way. the example of Dante Germany, there's also the aspect of, you know, yes, you are being ordered to do this and you're terrified. So you're going to do it. But that person giving the order 
has been ordered to give that order. And if they don't do it, they're also terrified. So there's this weird like chain going on where everyone is terrified and maybe no one wants to do this except for one psychopath at the top who's like, yes, we should exterminate these people. And then it just goes on down the line. And when when you have a chain like that, you're far removed from the actual ex- the execution of that yes. particular order yep. because you're just the guy that's fall- saying, okay, I'm going to this next person down the line. They need to do this. Yep. You need to take this this you know group of men, move them over there, and that's all you're telling them to do. Yep. And they once they're there, and it's just down to the last person actually pulling the trigger. You're you know 15 commands between the person that right. actually originated the order. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Um, so that's it for the movie. I feel like I feel like this is like the you said. Episode we've oh, done. yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know. Gone Girl was pretty happy. I think that 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 I, takes I, the cake. I love that one. Actually. It's a good one. Um, but it's like you mentioned, it is a very well made, not very good movie. And it's frustrating because there's so many interesting ideas that are built in to this situation. I don't know how much of that is in the book and how much of that is taken out. But like, you know, just the idea. I mean, if you just put it on paper, like, you know, people for no reason are suddenly going blind and they're put basically in concentration camps. Like that is an interesting idea. How could that possibly be boring? And yet here we are in a boring movie (laughs) about people going blind for no reason. Uh, Pretension. Yeah. They, 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 they're getting caught up in their own headiness and forgetting to make something that's entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, that should be the first goal of making a fucking movie <laughs> is entertaining the people in the seats, but oh, well, I guess not in this one. And, and I don't, and I, I use that word very loosely mm-hmm. because I don't mean you need Vin Diesel to show up in a 66 softback to, you know, you know, save the day. <laughs> I'm not saying it's yeah. a bad thing. It wouldn't <laughs> have a negative impact on this particular film. But entertaining, just in, you have to be engaged. You have to make us want to follow the story. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. All right, so let's talk about the movie we're pairing this with. So because this week is so fucking bereft of anything good uh, coming out in theaters, I went with a VOD release because I'm not doing an episode on fucking Smurfs. I'm not doing an episode on like – yeah. Uh, no. Uh, and I'm not, the sequels. Come on. It <laughs> writes itself. No, no thank you. Uh, and I'm not doing an episode. There's. I'm trying to remember the name. I can't remember, but it's like Michael Caine and um, oh, sure. Alan Arkin, uh, like Morgan Freeman. Style, Zach, going in style. Yeah. And I just had no interest really in seeing that movie. Like I'll probably see it eventually, but whatever. It's so, probably harmless. Yeah, exactly. And what do you say about a movie that's harmless? Like, yeah, it was okay. Anyway, episode's over. So so I decided let's look at what's coming out in VOD, and there is a VOD movie called The Ticket uh, starring Dan Stevens, which is about a man who yeah. gets his vision back. Uh, so I figured this is kind of the – either the opposite of the beginning of blindness or in line with the very end of blindness. So um, what are your expectations for The Ticket, Chris? As long as Dan Stevens takes his shirt off, I'm on board. You and me both, my friend. I just want him to get back in shape like he was in The Guest, and he, was, he could just stand there for an hour God. and 45 minutes, and I'm in. That movie is so fucking great. I, I like that movie a that lot. Movie. Yeah. Like, everything about it, from the soundtrack down to the performances, down to just how... Talk about a third act with The Rock showing up. It it's becomes like this relentlessly weird. Movie. Like, yeah, it's absolutely. so it's this horror action film that I I don't know who it was made for. If there's enough of <laughs> you me and me out there, that, <laughs> man, like that is just this 
there's all these movies that have been coming out in the last couple of years that are these homages to the eighties. Right. Um, and they're, they're getting aesthetic things, right. Um, they're doing these anamorphic lenses and they're getting a synth score mm-hmm. and, but they're not getting the sort of batshit crazy VHS movies. They're not getting those elements. Right. Yeah. I think that one got it. I think the guest feels like a movie that Kurt Russell would have done like in Absolutely. the 80s like just yes. like fuck it let's it's do the it lost carpenter movie yes exactly yeah this movie i feel like could be good uh but it probably won't like when whenever you have a movie like this where it's like it's clearly this this getting his sight and then going kind of buck wild and doing all these ridiculous things it becomes a pretty obvious metaphor for like oh now that he can see he's really blind to what's going on in his life i'm like oh okay like i feel like we've done this a thousand times but i do like dan stevens as a screen presence and that's not something i ever thought i would say before seeing the guests because <laughs> i'd seen him in what's that show oh downton abbey i'd seen him in that and i was like not really impressed with this guy whatever so and that's i think the reason i didn't see the guests when it first came out which was a huge mistake and then caught it on netflix and i was like who is this guy? This is Dan yeah. Stevens, really? So he's gotten to the point where I will go see a movie because he's in it, and I just hope this doesn't disappoint me. No, I take back all my recommendations from before. Fuck that. Go watch The Guest tonight. That's about yes. adaptation. Sure. Hell yes. <laughs> Absolutely. It's about me adapting to something entertaining. Yes, finally. All right. Uh, so before we take off, why don't you tell people uh, how they can contact you on Twitter or maybe about your podcast? Uh, you can find me on Twitter following underscore films. Um, you can Facebook slash following films. Just search for following films. You'll find me. My podcast, it's uh, about a half hour to an hour weekly show, interviews, that kind of stuff. Filmmakers. It's I, I you know, I accept it. It's what I do. It's not that good. It's not that bad. There's worse things out there. People are putting their name on. It's a good way to spend 25 minutes. It's not bad. Eh, there's worse things you can do, but there's certainly better things, too. Yeah, like listen to this show. So Absolutely. You know, check out Pop Culture Case Study. Give me money on Patreon. <laughs> he already did. You Give know. me money on Patreon. That's really yeah. what this is about. Pay me to do this thing I'll do for free. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So you just heard me jokingly talk about paying me to do this podcast and The way you could do that, if you would like to, no pressure at all, obviously, is to go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And there you can actually donate to the show on a per-episode basis. But of course, there's lots of other ways to connect with the show. You can just keep listening. You can tell your friends about the show. You can find me on Twitter, at PCCaseStudy. Or you could go to followingfilms.com and check out other great movie podcasts like The Best and Worst of the Best and War Machine vs. Warhorse. So, until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Why are you doing this with, uh... Because uh, I'm an idiot. If you have... Look, you know the answer to this question. It's the same answer anytime you ask me, why do you do this twice a week? Why do you... It's always the same... <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and i'm like I, I think you need to do an episode on yourself no honestly. no i'm not opening up that can <laughs> no sir <laughs> something strong with a song with a funky brain